What do you say to that? Why, why does it matter how we see sin? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Sin conveys hate. Conveys hate. Okay, so it conveys what you hate. That's powerful because if you see if you see nothing wrong with sin, then perhaps you have either a hate or an improper view of God. Mm -hmm. Right? Good. It matters to God. Yeah, obviously it matters to God. If it matters to God, it sure better matter to us. Seems severe, doesn't it, in the moment where here God on the first, this is really the first major judgment you have. You have Cain who was cast away, but this is God destroying an entire world. Uh, even he says here in verse, um, back in verse 12 uh, or 13, it's not just that he's going to just wipe out the wicked. He's going to destroy the entire earth he created. The entire earth, in Genesis 1, he said, was very good. So obviously it expresses some kind of severity in the heart of God of how he sees sin. That's more. Yes, sir. The payment for it is death. Yep. Yep. It's got to be serious if, if death is on the line. Right. Right? right. Taking of a life. Yes, sir. Sin separates us from God. Mm hmm Yep. Anything that separates us from God has got to be serious. Yeah? Sir? I think, for me, it points out the world is black and white. Yeah. There's evil and there's righteousness. And there's an element, huge element of truth there. And frankly, that verse... Uh, verses 5 through uh, 7 there, I think, are the saddest verses Aren't they? in the Bible. Yeah. There's not many verses you have when it says that God was saddened, or depending on your translation from verse 6, that God was sorry. Um, the regret in God's heart. Uh, that's, a, that's a grieving verse there. Something that broke the heart of God was seeing the fallen state of his people and where they had gone to. Maybe a couple of verses to add to what some things y'all are saying. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's our perspective there. Death is on the line. Obviously, God has expressed his severity on the matter. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I think that's important with our black and white concept. Sin is not some sort of just a spiritual accident. It is breaking a law, a transgression. You're doing what God has said not to do. Um, this is why I think it's important, though, because what happened to God's people, this is the beginning of Isaiah, when Isaiah is still addressing the people of God, uh, seems to fall back into, into every generation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Right? The exchanging or redefining of what God has said so very long ago. Why, why do you believe every generation challenges this or faces this of redefining or challenging how it is we see God? Why do you think this is such a struggle? Our will. Yeah? Yeah, give me a little more. Why? What do you mean by our will? Well, the will is like, I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. And that says I shouldn't do what I want to do, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. God says it, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Mitch? I think part of it is, you know, with each generation, each culture, we, we have a tendency to, to view sin in light of our cultural acceptances and norms, but it's still sin. You know, we see that even in today's culture. <coughs> All the things that are God calls sin, people call, that's, not, that's okay. Think, think about how we redefine that, right? that cohabitation is just an alternative lifestyle, or homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle. Um, that abortion, taking one's life, is just a choice, uh, the matter of one's choice. It's softening or redefining things that God has expressed in clear terms, and every generation will face that. Uh,
let me ask you this. When you look at God's response in Genesis 6, and what he says he's going to do, and what he tells Noah he's going to do, does it seem severe? <laughs> does it seem like it's too severe? There are some who will say, I think it's at least worth wrestling right now, that was too much. That, that was too strong of a response for God. You're going to judge us anyways. I mean, eventually there will be judgment for all of us. So. Alright, so the judgment anyway, right? And it's uh, at the end of the day, we're not the judge, right? There is going to be a judgment. Well, he didn't give them a hundred years for no preaching to them. How long did they need? <laughs> I've been listening to the same sermon for a hundred years. Get off the boat. All right. Well, so Proverbs 14, verse 12, right? There's a way that seems right to me. And I think that's, that's kind of the answer here is that within every generation, there's something that just seems right. It feels right. Okay? And there's always a temptation to follow what is felt versus what is stated. Okay? Or maybe this way. Um, to follow our own imagination versus God's revelation. Whether how it is I see God or what God has said. And so, in every generation, there's a redefining of what God has said and what He really means and what the truth states. There's a way that seems right, but the end of that way is death. And what you see in Genesis 6, it's not just that they were engaging in things such as lies um, or gambling. What was the sin that was highlighted over and over? It's stated in verse 11 and again in verse 13. What was it that, that, that God specifically points out was going on at this time in the world? Violence. Immense slaughter. Right? Violence. And so they were taking one another's life. Uh, God has already made it clear up to this point, from the very beginning, how he sees life, right? how he sees people. And here, when you have no regard for your God, you have no regard for your common man. And that's when life means nothing to you. And so they're slaughtering one another, and God's response is, I'm going to purge the world of sin. Now, to our point here, right? Look on the verse. By faith Noah being warned by God. And sometimes we see that and we think, that was a big act of judgment. But you realize the warning is actually an act of grace, right? Because God did not have to warn them, right? Have you seen those parents? There's some parents who will say, okay, no, don't you do that again. And sometimes it is kind of like a hundred years. Okay, I'm going to count to three. One, two. I read this time. One, two, and it's a... I do that, and I've never gotten to three yet. Because there's some children thinking, Mom doesn't know where three is. I got the But the warning is actually an act of grace. Because, as was said in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, that Noah is called this either a preacher, or here the ESV calls him a herald of righteousness. So God warned Noah, and by implication in warning Noah, Noah warned the world. God could have just wiped them all out on the spot, but instead he gives them over a generation, right? nearly a hundred years, to listen, to turn, and to repent. But I, I think in some sense, maybe to begin with the story of Noah, there, there is an immense warning by God through this story early on in the pages. We are not out of the first ten chapters in the book of Genesis, and we have this stark warning. Listen to God. Obey His words, because there are some serious consequences of those who chose to go their own way. Uh, for you and I today, right? Psalm 19 and verse 11, we talk about the blessings of the Word of God and the encouragement by the Word of God. But notice Psalm 1911, moreover by them, by the Word of God, is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It's the same for us today. We are warned by God's Word, 
about the boundaries, the guardrails God has set up, the way we ought to live and the way we ought not to. But notice the contrast. The Proverbs uh, four, uh, 14 verse 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in this death. But Proverbs 12, 28 says, and the path of the righteous, or righteousness, is life. Well, look at Genesis 6 and verse 9. How is Noah described? As a man of righteousness. Right? So there is a path. And maybe out of, out of the first few uh, chapters here, of, of uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, what we're shown is, even in the world that was choosing a different path, you can choose one that pleases God. You can choose a path that is honoring God. Yes, sir. I think in a way all of us in a room can relate to Noah um, mm. because, you know, look at the society we're living in, they're going one way. Yeah. And we're kind of going against the grain. And so in a way we kind of are like, like Noah today. Like, even though we're not perfect and we still mess up, whether willfully or accidentally, we're kind of like Noah in a sense that we're not singing the same song that yeah. people outside this building are. That's exactly right. I, I imagine there are going to be moments, if, if we've not faced them, that come more and more to the front, forefront of our minds that I feel more like an isolated preacher, an isolated person like Noah in the midst of a world that just doesn't seem to care or is not listening. Brother Sean. You made a point about an act of grace. There was a meme on social media a few years ago, maybe some of you saw it, that said it was Noah saved by grace or obedience. Mm. The answer is yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But, but the point of the meme was to say it was obedience, no grace. No, there's grace all over this. There's grace all over this story. Because yeah. God could have just sent the flood and wiped out Noah, because Noah wasn't sinless. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that, that's a good point, and, and I think this is an excellent exercise. If you have kids and grandkids, we, we did this <coughs> not long ago, um, they will get it immediately. If you use stories like Noah or Joshua, I want to end the notes, but just, just follow us through with me, right? So Noah was saved by building that ark, right? Why did that ark not sink or crash? Why did it work? Because he built it uh, exactly exact way God wanted it. God's grace, right? God's grace by him telling them about the flood and telling them to build the boat and helping that boat is what saved them. When did Noah receive that grace? When he built the boat. Right? Right? How was he saved? Because he was so smart? Because he was a great ark builder at that time? No, no. He was saved by God's grace. But when did he receive the grace? When he did what God told him. When he obeyed. Yeah. Think about it. I think I can trace one more. So, so Joshua and the armies in Jericho, why did those walls fall down? It's God's grace, right? Because walking around walls don't make them fall down. <laughs> right. Right? Right? Special walls like that. They fell down by God's grace. When did they receive that grace? When they walked around. You see? You see? So when people today say, oh, we're saved by works. You, you say we're saved by works. Well, no. No. Obviously, it's God's grace. But when do you receive that grace? Right? And kids can get that immediately if we just kind of use our time and illustrate that. Good points, everyone. I really appreciate that. It's well, that's, that's a challenge, I think, today what? is... I've been asking myself you know, since I've got a new grandson. Yeah. Today, how do you teach a kid mm -hmm. right from wrong? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a huge, huge challenge. Actually, we're going to be there in two points. Can you can you hang on to sure. that? Sure. I want to hear, hear your answer to that. Because <laughs> we're almost there, Rick. So you have a minute to think about it, all right? <laughs> all right. I think another point we see from here is that Noah obeyed without having all the answers. So just let's go to Genesis, and then we'll catch what the Hebrew writer says. Back in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, God begins this in specific instruction about this ark. And he says, I want you to make 
For yourself an ark of gopher wood, this is verse 14. Uh, you shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Uh, this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. Uh, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. Uh, he says, why? Verse 17. Behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all the flesh with its breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. In verse 19 he says, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you yourself, take for, uh, for yourself some food, some of all the food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and food for them. And the Hebrew writer says, that Noah warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed the ark. So put yourself for a moment in the sandals of Noah, and God comes to you and says, I want you to do this, and I want you to build this ark. What would have seemed strange, unsure, confusing about this command? I'm in the middle of a place where there's no water and you want to make me build? What is this thing? <laughs> it's a lot there. Okay, number one, they weren't building a lot of boats back then. Right? And even if they did, we can't say they never built a boat. We don't know. But we know they never built one that size. Right? 510 feet by 85 feet by 51 feet tall. They've never been done before or since. Not like that. In fact, when you kind of consider the ark to some more of the modern ships we have seen in history's past, it was an absolute marvel at the time what Noah was able to build. Okay? So one is, you've never had something like that constructed before. What else would seem strange about God's command? Some things that Noah uh, might have had questions about. How about no rain? Yeah. <laughs> There's a good case, the only time we read about rain, the first time we read about rain, is when it's rained for 40 days and 40 nights, right? In Genesis 2, it talks about a mist that was created for the watering of the vegetation. And so there's a good assumption that Noah had never seen rain before. Certainly not this kind of rain, right? Because <laughs> God's saying, I'm going to water and flood the whole earth. He's going to say, how? What's that mean? What else? I'd be like, I don't even know how to remodel a kitchen. And you want me to... <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's it. Remodel a kitchen. That's right. Three decks, Noah. Three decks on this boat. Yep. Yeah, what else, what else would it seem a little strange? How in the world am I going to get all those animals? They're wild. I can't catch them. <laughs> well, and see, that was one thing. Sometimes we, we read this, and we've been away from it for a while. That was one thing I wondered is how, how would he gather all of these animals? But you notice in verse 20, by God's work, he is going to bring the animals to him. But you still wonder about that, right? He didn't Noah know has told God. this. What does that mean? They're coming to me. What am I going to do with them, right? I've got to put them on these ark. But I don't think he knew at the time that they were coming to him. God just said, you you build this ark and you get these animals. Uh, he did what God said, and he didn't know God was going to bring them in two by two. That's absolutely right. Two by two. Or seven, is the case. Seven maybe. with the clean. That's right. But there's still the logistics of, I'm having to house these animals, and down in verse 21, <laughs> to get food for me and for these animals, does God tell them how long he's going to be on the ark? <laughs> if you're going to be on a vacation, do you need to know how much food you need for you and your dog? And especially if you have all the dogs in the world, <laughs> right? That's not how it was, but especially all these animal kinds, right? Yes, sir. 
And day after day explaining yourself, what are you doing this for? Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. the people around you. Absolutely so. What? Why? Why is this happening? Uh, what, what? What does it mean? The whole earth is going to be flooded. And when someone says the whole earth, do you mean like like here, like our country, our city, or do you mean the entire globe? There's a lot of questions you would have had about this. Go on, brother. Also about food, the edible food you have to collect. You think about all the food. How long would that food last if you collected it? So God had to be involved in that too. I think. Absolutely, yes, sir. Yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Where do I get all the lumber? <laughs> <laughs> Three decks. How do we build without backhoes and cranes and uh, how's yeah? Where how's he going to get all this done? Logistics of it. Pitch. How's he going to get a pitch to cover that entire huge boat? Just what a lot of questions. Pitch. What what is pitch? Right. What what, what what at this time? What is pitch? What does that mean? So here's the, yeah, well, obviously it was tar, but at the time for Noah to understand these things. Now here's the point. He had a lot of questions, right? Without a doubt, certainly there's a lot of questions Noah had. And yet, Hebrews 11 said, out of reverent fear, he constructed the ark. Or in our context, in verse 22 of Genesis 6, thus Noah did all that God had commanded him, so he did. Why do you think sometimes questions get in the way of obedience? Lack of trust for God, I, for, in my case, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Does it make sense to us? Do we can't understand it? Is it wrong to have questions? No. No? no? Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt, which means along the way you're going to find people of God, the children of God, who wrestle, wrestle with why. Uh, wrestle with things they don't understand. But I'll tell you this, uh, even though Noah had never seen anything like this before, uh, he listened, he obeyed, and he fulfilled what God asked him to do. We were standing right here, this was not our picture, my mom and dad and uh, me and my wife and our children went to the ark last year. It was not this pretty, actually it was raining and cloudy, kind of eerie when you're at the ark and it's raining. <laughs> You're in the safe place. Get on the boat. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. I, I want to ask you a question. We were standing there and we were looking at this art. And, and to me, if you've ever been to this, this is in Ohio. Uh, an amazing experience, especially if you have kids and grandkids. Um, they, they have neat things inside, exhibits. But I will tell you the most amazing thing about the art is just seeing the size of it. Just the, the magnitude of this art. So we were standing in line to get on this boat. And my mother leans over and she goes, why did God have them build that big boat? Like, why not just kill all the wicked people on earth? I mean, he could do that in a moment. He could just, by his power, kill all the wicked people. Why, why go through all this effort and have him build that big boat? I thought, well, where's Dad, Mom? Why are you asking me? <laughs> no, it was an excellent question. And I'll tell you what I think, but I'd be curious what your thoughts. Why? Obviously, we can't whittle on God's end of the stick, right? We're not going to give an answer for God, but I'd be curious your thoughts. Do you see any reason as to why God would have Noah go through all of this effort instead of just <clears throat> taking out the wicked? I think it was to show that there is a specific way to be saved. Okay, okay. God has a way and a plan. A way and a plan. And it represents Christ in the future. It definitely is going to be used to point to things long. And God has done that a lot along the way, where He weaves certain moments or commands to shadow things greater yet to come. That, that's a really important point. Yeah, lessons for us and through the ages. I mean, we're talking about it today because He did that. If it were just a one-sentence uh, 
saving grace, mm -hmm. we probably wouldn't have a lot to talk about. Absolutely, sir. Yes, sir. He tested Abraham's faith, and also I think he could have been testing Noah's faith as well. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Later on, it talks about the the way baptism happens throughout how throughout time, and different people mm -hmm. all have been baptized, whether the Israelites or even to us. Um, this right. was referring to that as well, and that's. I mean, how God <coughs> Excellent, excellent. He's using something now. He's yeah. using a time to teach and to illustrate the point. Yes, sir. Well, I think he wanted to give people a chance to repent. Because, I mean, if just one person outside Noah's family there you go. believed him and said, hey, can I get on a boat with you? I doubt Noah would have said no. <laughs> he was preaching. He was telling them to, right? He was yeah. calling for them to do so. Yeah. So from Hebrews 11 to verse 1, uh, the author defines faith in these words by saying that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I love that point that in many ways it's, it's precious to think about it that even Noah's Ark was for us. There, there's something so powerful and so true and so illustrative about what Noah did by obeying God even without having seen all of what was to come. Without having seen rain, without ever having seen a flood, without ever seeing a boat like this, maybe even a boat himself. He listened and he obeyed. And that's what's really important. Because, I'll, I'll be right there. Actually, let's go ahead because I wrote it in a minute. What? Yes, sir. Oh, I was just thinking about the attributes just demonstrates of God, His patience, mm -hmm. the severity of His judgment. I mean, it shows us, shows uh, Noah and us a lot about God. Absolutely mm -hmm. so. God's revealing Himself through His commands. I think we'll talk a little bit more of that on uh, Wednesday. Yes, sir. This continues to be a test of faith for us. How many attacks on our faith do we get because, see, this story's in the Bible. It can't be true. That's exactly right. Therefore, none of it's true, so you sort of reject it. You can't say the Bible. Worldwide so flood, big boats. That's, that's stuff like Noah, a hundred years hearing that this can't be true. We get if, if you listen, we get to hear this for our lifetimes too. This can't be true. That's exactly right. Keep your marker in uh, Genesis six. Go to Second Peter, chapter three. <laughs> The ark, in many ways, is a visual representation of what faith truly looks like. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter actually mentions Noah quite a bit and his two letters. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3, he says, 2 Peter 3 and verse 3, says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his kindness, Jesus? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, but that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the, wor uh, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years, uh, years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all its works will be burned up, since all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. It's not so far-fetched to put yourself in Noah's position and to be told there's going to come a worldwide flood and you need to build a boat and you need to build it this way because I'm telling you these things are going to take place and you listen and obey without having seen it. Because we've been told there's going to come a day and the skies are going to unfold like a scroll and the Lord will descend with a trumpet, with a trumpet sound and the voice of the archangel I loved it. and angels as far as the eye can see gathering and reaping and this world will be destroyed by fire. The same faith it took for Noah to build that ark is the same faith you and I are leaning on right now. That day is going to come. And in many ways, just as Noah was building the ark and calling for people to get on board, you and I, we're not building an ark. But we're calling for people because there is an ark. There is a way out. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a powerful illustration, isn't it, of the faith we need today? Uh, we haven't seen it. We've never seen anything like that before. But God said it's coming. And if Noah believed, we need to believe. Yes, sir? There's also a day for each and every one of us when we take our last... Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That day will come. Whether we're ready or not. Yes, ma'am. It's also something that's never been found. You know, people spent money and all kinds of things to look for this great big boat. So I think that's also got got to do with obviously God's plan and his providence and uh, how it affects us. Yeah, you know, I there's some things it's neat that we find it, and there's some things we don't need to find it. That's right. You know, that, that's what faith is. We don't need to find evidence of thousand-year-old uh, uh, gopher wood <laughs> somewhere in the mountains to know this really took place. Yes, sir. As to why God, you know, chose this way to to show His grace, we just learned in Luke chapter ten where Jesus praised God mm. for tripping up the intelligent you know, yes. world and and displaying it to the infants, yes. so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely so. Beautiful illustration. Okay, a few more points. We need to get on here. Uh, the faith of one can influence the faith of others. Uh, back in our context in the book of Genesis chapter 7 now. In Genesis 7 and verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Into the ark, you and all your household, for I, uh, for you alone I have seen to be righteous. There is again, walking that path of righteousness. Uh, before me this time, in verse 7 it says of Genesis 7, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark, because of the water of the flood. And here Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. The faith of one can make a tremendous difference in the life of others. And scripture shows us that again and again and again and again. Right? Because who introduced Peter to Jesus? Andrew, Andrew, one, right, one person, right? Uh, who was, actually, Andrew does that a lot of times. He's the one who brings Peter to Jesus, who brings that boy with the fish and the loaves to Jesus, who brings those Gentiles who want to see Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, who wants to bring them to Jesus. But the thing is, when you look at this, and I think you, maybe you've heard this point before, when you look at Noah just as an abstract, evangelistically, he seems like an incredible failure. Because for a hundred years he preached, and no one, came into that boat by his family. And you can imagine, if you preach the gospel for over five years, or ten years, or twenty years, and no one comes, only the Savior there, and no one wants to hold the Bible study with you, and no one will come to worship services, and no one will obey the gospel, probably not feeling too good about yourself as a preacher. 
And here he preached for a hundred years. Was he a failure? No. No. It's important for us to define why, though. Why was he not a failure? He, he kept preaching. God. He obeyed God. He kept preaching. He kept preaching, mm -hmm. right? It didn't affect his com commitment and faith in, in the Lord. It, it didn't affect him, right? He, yeah. he, he got on the boat. Yep. Right? He built a boat and he got on the boat. And he preached, and that's important to realize. Do we save souls? No. 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 We just preach the word and share that word. And God is the one who will not see, receives that open and honest heart. We need to remember that. We're doing good work, even if we can't see that fruit along the way. Yeah? Why else was he not a failure, brother? I think, I remember, I think it was Ezekiel. God said, if, if you tell them and they disobey, them, their blood is on their own hands. But if you don't tell them, the, their blood is on you. Just yesterday, Jesus was uh, preaching with that limited commission. It says there's going to be some places you're going to have to wipe the dust off your feet because they're not going to listen to you. you got to go your way. Just It's going to happen. There are people who are not going to listen to you. Okay? The main reason he was not a failure is because... His, his household was saved. Right? His family got on the boat. Okay? And, and that is, that's a really, really, really important lesson. Is. When I first started, uh, started preaching in uh, 2009, uh, Dad would have me go and interview different preachers, and I got to spend an afternoon with Brother Paul Earnhardt, which was just rich. Uh, all I did was put this recorder on the table, because I knew if I tried to write it down, I just I wouldn't get it. But I'll never forget, because he was going on about preaching and writing sermons, and that's good, it's technical stuff. But he leaned across the table and he said, I want you to remember something. He says, when you have little kids, you stay home. Because there's nothing more important you will do than to save your wife and your kids. And there's a lot of people who have lost their family to save the world. It's indicting, isn't it? Scared. You know, we want to do so much and so many good work to save so many people, but our highest priority, if we have a family, is our wife and our kids. So could you share with me a little bit? I'm curious. I'd love to learn from you. How... How can we at home make a difference? How can one generation help to pass along the faith we have in God to the next, either to our children or our grandchildren? What are things that you have seen that are effective? Ways that we can carefully and correctly and compassionately just to share this, this faith we have in God to our next generations? I think living by example is, is really important. Mm, they've, they've got to see it. Mm -hmm. They've got to see it. Because they will see it, yeah. right? <laughs> if uh, faith in the Bible is only open at the building, they're going to see that and see the inconsistency, but they'll see faith at home. They'll see it alive in the mom and dad and grandparents. How else? I ask this question a lot when I go on gospel meetings to couples I come into contact with who raise faithful Christians. Mm. One of the answers I always get from people is instill in them a really desire to marry someone of the same faith one day. Mm. Because that's a lot of people who fall away. It usually is tied a lot of times who they marry. You, if you marry, if you get your kids to marry a faithful Christian, persuade them to, that will go a long way. I've heard from older seasoned disciples and helping your kids stay faithful. Those big decision markers are huge. <clears throat> Marriage is a big decision. College is a big decision. And not necessarily where they go to college in terms of the university. Uh, but where that low, uh, university is located, um, is there going to be a church there, a support system? This is a time when their faith is going to be tested. How are you preparing for that season of their life? They're, they're, those big question markers are really huge. And navigating with the family is going to be really important with your kids. Alice, what have, what have you all seen about sharing faith with 
children, grandchildren of help. Yes, yes I think <clears throat> what God says to talk about it all the time. And there's examples with things that you do or that you can use in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important. I mean, all the time. Yeah. It becomes natural. Or talking about God isn't strange. Right. Yeah. Right. You're used to talking about God. In fact, some, some, there's some people, and maybe some of you are like it, like you've taken Deuteronomy 6 literally because your house looks like Hobby Lobby. You go in there and there's like <laughs> verses <laughs> on all the walls. And I love that though, because on every wall, they are seeing scripture. And maybe not by intentionally sitting there memorizing it, they are getting the word of God in their heart because it's just, it's all around them. And I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. Here, let's, let's, let's start here. Or like if your son or daughter comes home from school and says, there's somebody that's treating them badly. Well, let's pray for them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's natural. just everyday. Example. The first response, right? Uh, if something's going on. No, no, that, that's wonderful, right? A, uh, a police car is going by. You know someone's in trouble. Let's say a prayer right now. Uh, we just got bad news about someone. Well, right now, let's let's pray. Or good news, let's pray. I, I had my son the other day asking about ice cream. Where did ice cream come from? And I thought, okay, um, it comes from God, but let me explain why. And, uh, and then let's praise the Lord for amazing things like chocolate and ice cream. And, uh, yeah, but you, you can make it. You can make it where God is just a part of everyday living. And that's that's a beautiful way of living. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that um, <coughs> helping them realize that it needs to become their own faith. Yep. Uh, that's something that I struggled with, like not just taking on the opinions or perspectives of former generations, okay. um, whether or not that they're strong Christians, Good. but really letting them, I mean, learn the hard lessons and see the scriptures for themselves. It's not easy. I'm sure it's going to be even harder. But to, to recognize, but yeah. That's a good shift, because we, we teach our kids when they're young what they need to believe, but there's not always a transition when they get to those formative middle school, high school, college years as to why they need to believe it, uh, the, the evidence behind it. Um, we're good at giving them the facts and not the reasons behind the facts, and that's really important because there's some tough questions along the way that our kids have. Why, why is this a word about? Why do we know it is? Right? Why, why do we believe Noah actually happened? And why? What, what evidence is there? What, why, are, why are we believing this beyond the fact that we were taught at one point by someone before us? That's really good. And to that point, when our kids have questions, because they will have questions, it's a great thing at home. Right? And so if our kids come home thinking, I, I don't know if I believe there is a God. So, all right, you sit down. We're going to call the elders right now. <laughs> Sean's going to perform an exorcism, and we're going to get into Questions can be a path to great faith, right? to a confident understanding, but that depends on how we handle the questions and provide them to them, because they're going to they're gonna continue to ask it. They're just going to look for answers in different locations if they don't get from us. Yes, sir. And help them to be familiar with the Word of God, yeah. because the answers are there, and that if they know that, they'll go and they'll find yeah. those things. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. I think it's also important to teach kids to spend time with and respect and learn from older Christians. Yes, yes. That's, that's, that's something that's getting lost. Grandparents, we need to be paying attention to this. Uh, the, this new generation now, they're a safe place. It is right here. <laughs> we see that church. I'll, you walk up to a teenager, and if they don't want to talk to you, they'll pull up their phone, and that ends the conversation. I don't want to talk to you right now. 
the idea of, of talking face to face with people is getting lost, but especially the talking from one generation to another is getting lost. And we need to be really intentional about building relationships from a younger to an older. Uh, it will pay great dividends of learning and maturing of our children's faith if they respect the older voices. Ms. Miranda. Um, this goes along with being an example, but they need to see consistency yes. in our life. Yes. There's never a question, are we going to church today? Are we doing, you know, mm -hmm. that they see the consistency of it. Absolutely so. I love that. Consistent, because that's who we are, right? Yeah. Yes. Every day we're going to be a, a people of God. Just two passages, and I'm going to get some, some comments. Proverbs 20, verse 7 shows that the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. It's not the Lord's children, it's that man's yeah. children, a man who watch, uh, walks in righteousness or integrity. And again, how is Noah described as a man of righteousness, right? He's Jesus' path. You see the consistency here. Uh, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Again, it's not the Lord's children, but the man who has the fear of the Lord will have a refuge. You're providing a strong stability of faith for your household and for your children. All right, I had two comments over here. We've got to be aware of what the world is teaching them, especially in the schools, the world views, and have answers for them from God's Word, how that's not true. Because for me, I became a Christian late in life, and part of my problem was what I was taught in school about evolution and mm -hmm. everything, and, mm -hmm. and I really believed it. I took that belief even into my Christian life. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started studying for myself to see well, that's not true. There, there are people out there teaching, you know, in the secular world, that that is not true. That's right. And we need to be prepared for that. That's right. We need to change that rhetoric because there are lies the evil one loves to spin over and over again. There over, was a, yeah. What was that song back in the, uh, was it the 80s, a country song that uh, heaven is just one sin away? Yeah. Can you remember that? Um, essentially, if all the pleasure you want is just... You know, it was talked about that, that adulterous relationship. But if everything you want is just, there are lies the evil one loves to spin. And our children will buy them if we're not giving them the correct worldview and response to truth. Love that point. Excellent. Yes, sir. We don't think about this, but think about the number of years that every day Noah and his family got up with uh -huh. a task to do that was in line with carrying out his obedience to the Lord. Every day. Every day. Decades and decades for nearly hundred years, and it, it gives hope when you have when you have a child that's not doing what's the right thing. It's like this is still a long-term process. Yes, every day it's still have to set the right example and still have to make the right call to, to keep the ones that are there there and to try to bring the ones who aren't back. Yeah. Okay. So two excellent thoughts on this. We're not going to finish this lesson at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Later comes one. I love the idea. Can you get that imagery? Noah didn't build the boat by himself. Uh, there's no way he did. And certainly his sons would have been involved. Can you imagine bringing your children along with you in your service to God? Right? They're involved at home and studying and worship. They're helping serve the brethren and serving those around you. It is a family in service to God. And what a difference it made for that family. But to the other point, maybe if Noah had a fourth son, right, and that son was not faithful, Noah's still going to build that boat. And those sons need to see that. And their dogs need to see that. And there's grace. If they're still alive, there's hope. We never give up. We never give up on our kids and our grandkids. We pray, and we set a right example. And Luke 15 is there for a reason, good brethren. Prodigals can come home. They certainly can. We need to believe that. We need to believe that God can bring our prodigals home. And we're going to give them time and patience for that. we got to move on a little bit. I love your comments. I wish we could be here all day. I would keep you if we did. Uh, 
By this he condemned the world. Walking with God puts one at odds with the world, and we don't like this point. We like to think that we could be faithful to God and still live at peace with the world around us. We would like to think that. We like to think that we can do what God wants us to do and not be at odds with the world around us, but that's just not the way it is. Jesus made it clear that there are two paths, two destinations, followed by and resulted by two choices. And inevitably, those two choices are going to result in a great deal of conflict. Um, in fact, we find passages like 1 Peter 4, verse 4, that there are some... Notice the language here. It's fascinating. Again, noting, noting that Peter mentions Noah several times in his letters. In 1 Peter 4, verse 4, he says that there are some, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same... Flood. Isn't that fascinating? He uses that word flood of, debauch of debauchery. Not excess of, of debauchery. Large amounts of flood. That's not an accident. right? The flood of debauchery and they remind you or malign you. So there are some who don't understand and in fact will respond with, with mockery and with, with persecution for those who choose to, to walk the way of God. You ever wonder this? Um, why was it such a big boat? Noah and the animals could have fit on a smaller boat. It didn't have to have three decks. He could have had all the animals and he and his family without that big of a boat. Why was it that big? What's that? So someone can see it. Too crowded. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, God's patience. The ark was big enough for anyone who wanted to get on board. That was why. Right? There's plenty of room for anyone who wanted to listen and obey. But. Do you remember when Jesus was asked a question by his apostles? They saw the temple and Jesus says, there's not going to be a stone left on this. It's all going to come down. And they said, what, what do you mean? When is this going to happen? He likened it back to the days of Noah. And he says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, here he is preaching and building this, this boat. And what was their response? We're just living life. Living life the way we want to live unconcerned about this warning of judgment that came upon them when it came. It put one at odds with the world. But I think the end, and one of the most uh, powerful things about uh, the story of Noah, is that there's this grand promise. Go to chapter 9 of Genesis. We're going to end right here. <clears throat> Genesis 9, verse 11. <clears throat> After the flood has come, and Noah and his family are able to exit the boat, in Genesis 9, verse 11, it says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of flood. Neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of the flesh that is on the earth. I don't know it. I tried looking it up on Google, and obviously there's no way of, uh, of calculating it. It makes you wonder, 
How many rainbows have there been since God made that first promise? There it is. It's foolish to look, but it makes you wonder, doesn't it? How many rainbows have there been since God made that first promise? And every single time, do you see that down from verse 14 and 15? Every time, or actually verse 16, every time that bow is in the cloud, he looks, he remembers, and he keeps. He keeps his promise all along the way. And he gives us reminders. It's, it's, I haven't forgotten. God hasn't forgotten, and we haven't forgotten. Yeah. Right? And so in one way, the promise is, is a very threatening thing. Because when God promises there's going to be a flood, there was a flood. And when God promises there's going to be judgment, there was judgment. But God also promised grace and safety with the ark. And here God promises He's never going to do this again. And in fact, what's fascinating is when the prophet Isaiah looks at Noah, he doesn't look at the story of Noah as judgment. When the prophet Isaiah looks and uses the context of Noah, and Isaiah 54 knows the language, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isn't that fascinating? Where a lot of people look at the story of Noah as nothing but the act of an angry God. The prophet, through the word of God, says, actually, I look at this scene as a story of immense love and grace. I've kept my word, and I will rescue you, and I will redeem you. I will keep my promise just like I did all those years ago. <clears throat> and that, to our point before, from what our brother said, is, is what's powerful about our message today. Uh, we won't have to go through this context, but First Peter 3, Peter makes that same mention, that there's an ark that exists today in Jesus. That same promise of deliverance from the greater wrath to come, the greater flood to come, for those who would be willing to listen and obey and get on the ark, get in Jesus. And we have really so little to do now compared to Noah. We're not building an ark, are we? <laughs> and it's just the best life. So why don't people do it? It's an abundant life. Sister has a wonderful question and an amazing thought. So, any other observations, thoughts to wrap this up on our story of Noah? In our look at Mount Ararat? <laughs> you know, Jordan, I just think about the size of the ark that you had mentioned. Why, why was it like that? Why did, I wonder if it was, it was large because God could have probably had the ark built in 50 years. Could yeah. have, a smaller one. That's right. But then it would have been sitting there getting cobwebbed for 50 years. <laughs> and I think he kept them busy for 100 years for an ark that size because it took 100 years before I'm going to bring judgment on the earth. Yeah. Just a thought. I don't know if that's well, so. Well, you know what also makes you wonder? I don't, there's no way of knowing, right? It's us friends talking to friends. Yeah. But it makes you wonder. Certainly, perhaps, they took apart some of the ark to uh, construct things once uh, they got off the flood. But it makes you wonder, up there on the mountain, was there enough of the ark left over as a standing monument for the generations that followed of what took place? Could they see remnants of that boat still up there, reminding them on Mount Ararat of what really took place all those years ago? That makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if we had that today. 
We still had that bits of an ark on a mountain we could see. Maybe that would be a visual reminder. Yeah, people. people might be worshiping you, Phil. Ah, no, brother, brother, that's right. There's, there's a reason why we don't have a lot of those things. Let's uh, listen, if you will, in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for your comments. We'll end in a word of prayer, and I'll turn you loose on our Monday, Monday afternoon. Wonderful God, we give you thanks and grace for your wonderful word and for this incredible message from Noah. We are so thankful for your grace and for your patience. We realize, wonderful Lord, that you have laid out before us a path of righteousness, a path to a great life, to the best life. And yet we, like so many, often veer from it. Help us to listen to you and to trust in you and to follow you all the more. Allow this powerful story to remain true in our hearts, gracious Father, that we listen to you and seek you, and that we, like Noah, continue to believe in the things you have promised, even the things we, we cannot understand and see with our eyes. We know you are coming. We know that Jesus will come again. And gracious Father, we ask that you help us to have faith and confidence to be ready for His return, to be welcomed by Him and to live in your presence. Bless us with opportunities, gracious Father, and open doors to help those around us to hear that same message of salvation from the, from the flood to come. Give us opportunities, give us courage to step through those open doors and to reach those around us. Bless us the rest of this day, wonderful Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.